This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Tuesday, June 13th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The reporting out of India last week was horrific, suitably horrific, to the circumstance, as BBC4 reported. A gruesome monument to India's worst rail disaster this century. Mangled carriages are all that remain of three trains carrying thousands of passengers. After a devastating collision and derailment in the eastern state of Odisha on Friday night, hundreds are dead. It was a story of the inherent danger of a poorly maintained but immensely relied upon Indian rail system, where passengers make hours-long trips crammed together in standing-room-only cars. A week later, as in yesterday, the New York Times front page had a follow-up. Headline, in India train crash, most to die were the poor. Oh, not the poor. Of all the groups to be affected, you hate to see it happen to the poor. You don't expect that, except, of course you do. Why would it be any other way? Consider the reality of India. The New York Times, defining poor, is barely able to afford a $5 ticket, which they say is nearly a day's wage. I agree, that is poor. But the UN and India domestically have different levels of measuring poverty, and $5 a day isn't always defined as poor, especially if you want to emphasize the absolutely accurate fact that India has moved hundreds of millions of people from extreme poverty into something less than extreme poverty, but hardly the middle class. So according to the UN Millennium Development Goals Program, 84 percent of Indians live on less than $6.85 per day. This is the category of Indians we're talking about, who the New York Times describe as scratching money together to afford the equivalent of a $5 ticket. This means that, of course, most of the dead in that train crash were poor because most Indians are poor by this standard, which I think is a fair one. Among rail passengers, poverty is as common as it is in India as a whole. Add to the fact that the poor travel standing up in cars nearest the engine, how could the death toll be anything other than concentrated on the poor, as the death tolls in almost all disasters almost always are? What I found surprising was just how deadly India's rail system is overall. Yes, you hear about accidents involving dozens from time to time, even in the triple digits. But according to CNN, in 2021, more than 16,000 people were killed in nearly 18,000 railway accidents in India. So maybe we have a tendency to say, oh, it's uh, the the largest country in the world by population, which is true. But 16,000 people is still an enormous number. Consider that number in the same year, 2021, in the U.S. was 
893. Yes, India's four times the population of the United States, but India's 18 times the train fatalities of the United States. But actually, it's much worse than that if you examine the figures. In the U.S. of those 893 fatalities, the vast majority were of people who were on tracks after gates went down or who were passing in between cars or who were drunk or who were doing something against the law. They're classified in the official reports by the NSC as trespassers. Also, suicides account for almost a third of all U.S. fatalities. The number of Americans who died as passengers during a train crash in the last year, we have statistics for, which is 2021. That number, six, six people in the United States. And you heard the figures for India as a country overall, and in just one crash, this one horrible crash, 288 thus far have died. They are literally poor souls. On the show today, Donald Trump gets into the car, Donald Trump goes into the court, Donald Trump gets back into the car, and apparently has a bit of a birthday celebration. We break down the somewhat familiar game film. But first, let's talk whistleblowers. Jeffrey Wigand taking down Big Tobacco, Snowden. Or maybe you think of Frances Haugen. She exposed Facebook and what it was doing and what their Instagram subsidiary were inflicting on especially young girls. And she is now out with a book about her experience. It is called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. Up next, Frances Haugen. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. There are some figures, historical, contemporary, who get a, not so much a nickname, but a descriptor, a attached or amended to their names at all times. So Manuel Noriega was the Panamanian strongman and Audie Murphy, blast from the past, the most decorated or most highly decorated army soldier. So what I've been telling friends, I've been interviewing Francis Haugen, 
They say, who? And I say, the Facebook whistleblower. And they say, oh, that says it all. But of course, it doesn't say it all or else the book would be short. But the book is long. The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. Francis Haugen, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Happy to be here. First time you were compared to Manuel Noriega, I assume? Uh, it, it is. It's interesting. Yeah. So I had my I had a, a very interesting media experience last week, which was um, I am a fellow at McGill University this year um, because we're, we're doing a big um, program with the public policy school around like, how do you have a demo- democratic discussion around tech accountability? And I got introduced without being introduced as a whistleblower for the first time. Ooh. I was like, ooh, <laughs> the world has moved on. Like I am now something beyond just being a whistleblower. But I, I, I do get I, I do get what you mean. Like I, I have that experience on planes all the time. So But for yeah, but for branding purposes, we yeah. have to say it and the book has to say it. So doing this doing what you're doing in McGill, the fact that the regulatory uh, bodies are Canadian and not mm. American. How does that affect just what's possible? Mm, great question. So it's interesting. Um, so Canada proposed uh, a, an online safety law a couple years ago. It has many analogs to um, how the UK approached it recently, um, and it was a total disaster. Like I, I don't think I'm 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 being mean to the Canadians to say. It, it got a lot of blowback. It didn't really go anywhere. Um, and the reason why that law was kind of dead on arrival was it was very focused on bad content. It was like, here's all the yeah. bad things in the world. You cannot say those things online. And Every Canadian podcast I listened to, well, one out of four was like, oh, shut up. But three out of four was like, this is going to be, this is going to decimate the Canadian podcast industry. Even if you don't like Jordan Peterson, we need him. Totally. And, <laughs> and, and, and the secondary thing is like when you, like podcasting is one thing, like the scale of podcasting, like how many podcasts exist in the world. Uh, social media posts are like a totally different scale. And, right. and the way that we, you know, monitor content. If you, if you have a legal regime like that, where you say, Hey, you're going to find $50,000 if you have this bad thing. Um, you know, uh, the only way we can at scale, take down all those bad things is using AI. And the only way you're going to get every single last one is if you also take down good stuff. And, um, it's a, no one liked this law, like podcasters came out against it. Uh, academics came out against it. And so the Canadian government had to take a step back and say, God, we like really, we really made a mistake. And so they convened uh, two different expert panels. They did um, two rounds of something called a citizens assembly. It's where you bring together like a hundred representative Canadians and you give them some education on like, here's different points of conflict. Like, you know, how would you want to deal with this? Like, here's the limitations on it. And they came out with a law that, uh, or they came out with a set of recommendations that, that I really believe in, which is that uh, we need kind of a rebalancing of the relationship we have with social media that right now, uh, you know, uh, unlike every other similarly powerful industry, we can't even ask really basic questions about social media and get answers because the only people who can see behind that curtain are the social media companies themselves. And so the the law that they came out and said was like, hey, let's do some really basic rebalancing. Let's You need to tell us, you, the social media companies, if you know there's a risk, you have to tell us about that risk. If we ask you a question, you have to give us an answer. Uh, you have to work on reducing those risks. You know, you know your systems better than we do, but you need to tell us how you're going to do it. And you need to give us enough data that we can see that you're making progress. And um, I don't know, it's really exciting. It's hopefully going to get tabled this year. Um, and because 
like I think Canada tried and, and kind of messed up. There's like a, a different kind of possibility, right? Because they did this, all this homework. They did, you know, the, the democratic reckoning. And I'm really excited um, about the progress they've made. So risk, risk for what? Risk for uh, a lunatic to be mili- militantized? A risk militarized, for- Militarized, yeah. A, yeah, a, well, to become a militant. Yeah. I, a risk of a young girl to get an eating disorder? Mm. What risk? Yeah, there's there's a broad continuum. You know, it could be things like, uh, you know, I, 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 I deem a phenomena that we see over and over again um, that, you know, ties those two risks together. Um, algorithmic acceleration. So the idea that you can start with one interest and because you're, you're, what you're consuming is not being guided by other people, it's being guided by an AI sitting on a data center somewhere. You know, that AI can slowly push you towards more and more extreme topics. And we've seen this over and over again because the AI isn't actually intelligent. It doesn't know what it's recommending to you. Um, so that would be the kind of thing that, that they would have to disclose. They'd be like, hey, we've known, you know, in the case of Facebook, they've publicly said since 2018, we know our algorithms do this, right? We know that our algorithms, because they're just following the clicks, they will push people towards more extreme things. Um, but it's also, you know, uh, they would probably disclose things like eating disorders or self, self-image self issues just because, you know, at this point, you know, look at the Surgeon General's announcement from last week. Uh, you know, we have enough data now to say, yeah, there's a lot of kids out there saying this makes my body image issues a lot worse. But doesn't all media have a risk, in fact, a pretty high risk of either being misinterpreted mm-hmm. or creating behaviors, um, especially from impressionable young people, w- wouldn't all of the women's magazines from 1950 through 2015, before Jezebel shamed them into not mm-hmm. airbrushing everything, wouldn't they have to disclose this risk? What doesn't have a risk and how would how would a tech company be able to disclose it in a way that is more specific than, yeah, it's a risk, everything's a risk? I, I, love, I love the example you gave. So, so Jezebel, so for context, for those of you who you know, are a little bit younger than, than either of us are, um, Jezebel was an online uh, like alternative news source that had a, a focus, like a kind of a feminist focus. And in the it still is, it still is. It's it's smaller now. (laughs) You know, it's part of the Gawker media ecosystem before Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel came in and rained on the parade. Um, But uh, so Jezebel came in and they were like, "Hey, like let's make we're gonna make fun of you every time you like do bad airbrushing." Um, And they helped provide it along with many other activists, provided inertia for challenging how extensive the body alteration was in, in media in women's magazines. But but part of why that was possible was everyone who went to the newsstand saw the same news magazine. You know, it's not like every person got a slightly different news magazine. And when an activist mm. showed you an example and said, hey, look at this news magazine, it's horrible. You know, it, it, it wasn't possible for, you know, the, the women's magazine to say, that's not, that's not a representation of our, our, of our magazine. That's like, a, that's like a radical outlier. Um, and when it comes to social media, we all individually see very, very different products. And, it, and, and, and because of that information asymmetry, uh, you know, Facebook for many years has, has done a, a very extensive job of saying that is not a representative experience. And so I, one of the things that I find so interesting about the example you gave is a core part of the focus of my work now is on what we call the ecosystem of accountability. So that's the idea of like laws are kind of like almost like afterthoughts. Like we pass laws after we develop norms. And we develop standards for what it means to transgress a norm. 
Um, and, and the way we get to that place where we say like, Hey, this is how we think the, the rules of the road should be is, is by things like activists coming forward and saying, Hey, this is, this is not, not quite right. Um, and so I think in the case of, of a social media company, uh, they can right now, the only people in the world who really get to research Facebook or Instagram or TikTok are meta, i.e. Facebook and Instagram or TikTok. They're the only ones who get to see all the data behind the curtain. They get to see the people writing in with complaints. They get to see both the user interviews and they combine it with the data of their own systems to say, you know, how often does this happen? It's a very different context than for like a paper newspaper, paper magazine. And I'll give you one more, one more tiny example. If you go and read Elle, it's a women's magazine, it doesn't automatically, you know, turn the page, as you turn the pages, it doesn't get more extreme, right? Or, or it doesn't like come back to you the next day and say, would you like a more extreme version? And when it comes to social media, they've run the same experiments over and over again, where they take a brand new account, no friends, no interests. And they start with like moderate interests, like uh, healthy eating, healthy recipes. And they just, you know, put likes on stuff. You know, they just go down the first five things, first 10 things a day, put a like on it. Hashtag shows up. They follow the hashtag. Now, then a couple of weeks, you start getting shown pro eating disorder content. When it comes to politics, you can start with center left topics like Democratic Party, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, Biden. And following the same thing, blank account, you can get to should we kill Republicans in three weeks? Or you can start mm-hmm. center right and get to you know QAnon in a couple of days and white genocide in a couple of weeks. Right. Do the do the but mm, I know that YouTube was accused of this mm-hmm. and uh, there was there is some evidence that it exists. The University of Pennsylvania had a study saying that some of its existence has been overblown. But there is what gets recommended in a lot of circumstances can trend towards the extreme. Does YouTube, do the companies want this? You know, do they really want to be serving up so many people the video loose change about how 9-11 was an inside job? So let's actually take a quick, quick, um, let's, let's talk about how is YouTube different than TikTok and how is YouTube different than Instagram? So if you watch even short videos on YouTube, you really only get a new video, let's say every five minutes. Like if you're, if you're watching like conspiracy videos, like they are, they are, they are long winded people, you know, they like to mm-hmm. you know draw in all the lines between all the dots. If you look at TikTok videos, you get a new video, you know, on the order of every minute, every 45 seconds. If you go to Instagram, you can get a new piece of content, you know, every couple seconds. And so it's this question of, in the case of YouTube, the, the thing that they were complaining about before, and I think this is still on by default. I have it off. I don't really like it is it used to be you could watch a video and then YouTube would pick your next video. Mm-hmm. And so imagine you were going, let's say you're pa- playing Candyland, right? So Candyland, you have all the little steps, you go down the slides. You know, each one of the bricks on the Candyland trail is five minutes long. Like you can cover 12 bricks in an hour. If you're watching uh, TikTok videos, you can cover 60 bricks in an hour, maybe more. If you're doing Instagram images, if you're doom scrolling, you go through hundreds and hundreds of things in an hour. And so it's a question of how fast is the algorithm getting more data or more chances, like more times at bat to push you further along. And so um, my understanding, and again, this is one of the things where we don't have the internal data. We can only kind of watch from the outside. YouTube has seemed to engage with this topic a lot more intensely than others have. I'm guessing part of that is that they make their revenue from advertisers 
and they make it from very large brand advertisers, I think more extensively than say Instagram does. And so they are more sensitive to trying to take down extreme content. You know, it's one of these things where we are all getting censored every day. We just don't have the right right now to see how we're being censored. So, so far we've been, I've been using you, I've been talking to you as um, an expert, an expert who's seen the data, someone with some policy prescriptions, but I want to talk a little bit about just you as a person and what brought you to whistleblowing. It's really interesting to me. So first of all, I did not realize how could I, what did I see? I saw you mentioned at the State of the Union and testified before Congress and on 60 Minutes, but while you were working for Google, this was fascinating Mm. to me, you were, are, do you have celiac disease or just a gluten intolerance? I have celiacs. I got, okay. I got full-blown hospitalized because I was uh, starting to starve to death. Uh, okay. You can so, actually gain weight and have you like deeply malnourished at the same time. And part of the reason, mm-hmm. part of the complications was that the food labeled gluten-free at Google was, was not, not. Yeah. And what did they say to you? Or how did you say, wait a minute, this, tell me about that. So, so, um, when I, when I worked in Mountain View, it was okay, right? So in Mountain View, for context, for those of you who are not, you know, aficionados of Silicon Valley lore, you know, uh, the, the mothership in Mountain, Mountain, Mountain View, California of Google has, is so big, they have, I don't know, 20 plus cafes. So you go there every day. Back then people work from the office, get breakfast, lunch, dinner at the cafe. And because there are enough cafes, like I could go to like a couple of like the the farm to table or like, I don't know, hippie cafes. And I could reliably get food where like I never, I never corrected an allergy label. Like I, I look at it and I'd be like that, you know, I have kind of at this point, like a, an encyclopedic knowledge of like, what's the, the, what's the baseline recipe for, for a huge range of food. Yeah. Um, and I, and I get to, so I, I, I transfer up to the San Francisco office in uh, 2012 and uh, every single week, every single week, there'd be a dish where I'd look at it. and I'd be like, there's just no way that's gluten-free. And I'd be like, Hey, and I, I had two separate meetings with the head chef and he, he for the, just specifically for this one cafe in San Francisco and was like, Hey, like, you know, this is really serious. Like I, I can't eat, I can't eat wheat. And he'd be like, I make 180 dishes a week. I can't be expected to get the labels right. Yeah. The reason I want to bring up this anecdote is I don't know that we've sketched it fully out. The consequence of that was, I, I want to get it right, that you had paralysis afterwards? I did. I, I, I was so malnourished. And by the time I ended up in the hospital, so I ended up in the hospital because I, I got a clot in my leg and my leg turned blue. Um, and by the time I turned up in the hospital, um, they, they did a, a test called serum albumin, which is like the most common protein just in your blood. Yes. And it was so, it was so low. It looked like I was starving to death. And I was like, how is this possible? I gained a hundred pounds in the last two years. How can I be starving to death? Um, and so I went from being able to bike, um, 125 miles in a day on my bike to being in a wheelchair in two and a half years. Right. And then Isn't you, that crazy? It is crazy. And you were eating gluten without knowing it, yep. doing what you could to avoid it. It was yeah. because Google was putting forward meals saying this is gluten-free. They were not gluten-free. You caught it once in a while. The chef, he said, well, how am I expected to get all these labels right at the amount I have to churn out? Yeah. Do you realize that this is the perfect analogy for what you blew the whistle on? Oh, interesting. A tech company 
literally poisoned you, a young woman, right? Yeah. Told you that things oh, were fine. They weren't fine. Your health, yeah. in fact, your life was on the line. And then they said, oh, it's not our fault. This is exactly, I mean, it was a different company and not through yeah. uh, the physical means, but the analogy is so spot on. I couldn't, I when I read it and then I was waiting for you to kind of tie it together. It just struck me as so stark. I never thought of it that way. Wow. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's something, isn't it? Crazy. Frances Haugen was an employee of Google, Yelp, and Pinterest. She joined Facebook in 2019, worked in its civic integrity department. She showed she had some when she gathered documents and alerted the public to what they were doing. Her new book is called The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. Frances Haugen, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And Pesca Plus subscribers will get the rest of this almost 45-minute conversation in which we dive into Frances's experience as a whistleblower and what motivated her to shake up the entire world of tech as well as her own life. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. And that is for you, should you subscribe. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And now the spiel. Donald Trump gets into the car. People on TV say some things. Donald Trump gets out of the car. People say what they've been saying, but in the past tense. Donald Trump's car drives away towards, eventually, a press conference a couple months ago, or a rally today. It all should be shocking, historic, unprecedented. Words that convey urgency and import. But in fact, it's also tawdrily familiar. The Donald Trump federal case is much more serious in terms of strength of evidence and severity of punishment than the state case, and soon I suspect we'll have to clarify from the New York state case as opposed to the Georgia state case. But in both New York and Miami, some supporters gathered. In each case, not the thousands feared and predicted, but in the low hundreds. As with the New York case, there was lots of coverage beforehand and during about security concerns. Here's MSNBC's Joy Reid putting the question to former FBI official Frank Figluzzi. We've seen the power of his rhetoric. How concerned should we be that if Trump is indicted, particularly by the feds, that we might see MAGA violence? Quite concerned, in fact, more of the lone wolf actor than in established but now weakened militia groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers who led the January 6th insurrection. And I am in no way saying to be unconcerned, but the thought of the threat of violence, the frisson of danger, has now become 
just another part of the spectacle that these indictments are. The show. Like real NASCAR fans do not want crashes, casual looky-loos are somewhat compelled to monitor the races, you know, just in case, though they wouldn't want to admit it out loud. Among Trump supporters, the MAGA that Joey Reid referenced, and even among many Republicans for whom Trump isn't their first choice, there is a deep belief that double standards are being applied. Selective prosecution. Hillary Clinton, maybe even Joe Biden not being held to the same standard. Well, luckily we have, on tape, as complete a rebuttal to that idea as can exist. James Comey was on the gist the other week, and I pressed him hard on a few of his choices. How much credit to give the Steele dossier, the level of investigation to bring in crops via hurricane, how to rehabilitate the reputation of the FBI and the Justice Department. I could have pressed him on an older decision. Why did he publicly describe why he didn't indict Hillary Clinton? I can personally actually see both sides of that very tough decision, whether to announce it or not. But I have no issue with the FBI not prosecuting Hillary Clinton because it was clear why she wasn't being prosecuted because James Comey later out. And this is important as a rebuttal to anyone claiming that there are double standards. James Comey clearly laid out the standard, and he did so years before Donald Trump became president, meaning of course he did it before Donald Trump left office and before Donald Trump took documents with him and before Donald Trump tried to thwart the effort to recover those documents. So this isn't one of those retroactively reading of the cases and parsing the differences to try to reach a desired result. It was Comey saying it beforehand, and here's what he said. In looking back at our investigations, into the mishandling or removal of classified information, we cannot find a case that would support bringing criminal charges on these facts. All the cases prosecuted involved some combination of clearly intentional and willful mishandling of classified information or vast quantities of information exposed in such a way as to support an inference of intentional misconduct or indications of disloyalty to the United States or efforts to obstruct justice. We do not see those things here. So he laid out four elements that would have justified prosecution. Two don't really apply to this case with Trump and the documents. Two do apply. The vast quantities of material, that doesn't apply. Indications of disloyalty to the United States, that doesn't apply. But efforts to obstruct justice, yes. An intentional and willful mishandling of classified information, double yes. And those elements are all over the indictment. Counts 1 through 31, Donald J. Trump did willfully retain the documents and fail to deliver them. Count 36 did knowingly and willfully falsify, conceal, and cover up by any trick scheme and device material. Fact, trick. I like trick in in an indictment. Count 37 did knowingly and willfully make and cause to be made a materially false, fictitious, and fraudulent statement. Maybe tricky, a tricky statement. And as for the intent part, the indictment is replete with intent, which is usually hard to prove, but not in this case, it doesn't seem. Donald Trump is on tape bragging about his intent. Counts 33, 34, and 35 all have intent elements. Trump did knowingly conceal, cover up, falsify, and make a false entry in any document, record, and tangible object with the intent to impede, obstruct, and influence the investigation. Donald J. J. Trump did corruptly conceal a record document and other object and attempted to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity and availability. My point here is that there really do not exist good faith arguments rooted in the law about double standards. 
You could claim anything you want about motivations or the secret hopes and desires of the investigators, but it is quite inconvenient for anyone claiming there to be a double standard, that there was a clear articulation of what the standards for prosecution were, and those standards were made clear publicly before anyone had an inkling that the standard might or might not apply to Donald Trump. And then it was Donald Trump's own actions that wound up clearly conforming to the exact language of the standard that was articulated before he ever took a document and lied about it. So yes, I know. Anyone whose mind is open to that piece of persuasion has in fact already been persuaded unless they're waking up from a coma after five years. And I gotta say, speaking of comas, that the groggy deja vu just emerging from anesthetic feeling, I do understand that and I bet you do too, to some extent. Donald Trump has pleaded guilty to all 37 counts and immediately he sent out a fundraiser appeal reveling in that very development. The rally is on for tonight. We hope it is not the case that this one will be wild. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pasca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. Advertise Cast helps us produce The Gist. Sometimes we say it's produced in conjunction with Advertise Cast. Look at it either way. The standard applies. Hey, want to advertise on The Gist? I think you should. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Because when I say it like that all in a row, without really speaking it out, you might not know what I'm saying. Now you may have heard it and said, my God, I know someone who could advertise on the gist, and now I know where to go. Oomperoo, gperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.